Tonight on Arena, we celebrate the all-too-short life of Shane McGowan and measure his musical and cultural legacy. Five one double five one is the text. You can tweet the program at RTE Arena. Well, as you've heard on the news uh, throughout the day, Shane McGowan died this morning at the age of sixty-five. The songwriter and former frontman of the Pogues had been discharged from hospital last week and returned home with his wife, Victoria Mary Clark. Statement from the Pogues on behalf of Shane's wife, his sister Siobhan, and his father Morris said, "Shane died peacefully." at 3am this morning with his wife Victoria and family by his side. Born on Christmas Day in 1957 to Irish parents in Kent, he soon moved to rural Tipperary where he was immersed in culture and Cayley bands and show bands. The family later moved back to England where McGowan became involved with the burgeoning punk movement in 1970s England. He formed the Pogues in 1982. The band reached their critical peak with the 1985 album Rum, Sodomy and the Lash and their commercial peak with 1988's If I Should Fall From Grace With God. God. The latter provided the band with their biggest hit, McGowan duetting with Kirsty McCall on Fairy Tale of New York. Delighted to be joined this evening by John Maher, Paul McLoon, Dara Lynch uh, from Lancome and Shane's biographer Richard Balls and we will be joined later in the programme by Lisa O'Neill as well. Um, John Maher with me in, in studio here in Dublin. I suppose it, it's it's hard to know where to start with, with Shane McGowan, but one of the places we should start and talk a lot about is what a craftsman he was when it came to songwriting and particularly to song lyrics, John. He was an extraordinary lyricist. I mean, so many of his greatest songs stand alone as poetry. When you strip away the music and you simply look at the words, they are so beautiful. It shouldn't be a surprise, Sean, because this was a man who was reading James Joyce while in primary school. He was super intelligent, incredibly curious about the world. He always had a poetic turn of phrase and songs like A Rainy Night in Soho uh, are masterclasses in lyric writing. And he was aided and abetted by a bunch of remarkable musicians who were able to execute what was going on in his head. And those songs will last forever. Uh, also with us, as I said, is Richard Balls, who is uh, Shane McGowan's biographer. And this is uh, the, the biography was called A Furious Devotion, The Life of Shane McGowan. And I touched on it in the introduction, uh, Richard, the, the fact that he was born in England and then these visits back to his mother's cottage in, in Tipperary were a very important part of his early life. But maybe give us a sense of the type of community that he was living in and the family that he was living in uh, growing up in England and then those visits back to Ireland? Sure. Well, I mean, I think they couldn't have been more uh, different, really, in, in many ways. I mean, the house that they were living in uh, in England really was uh, a, a nice house in a, in a sort of cul-de-sac, uh, middle, middle England um, in Kent, uh, the Garden of England. Um, uh, you know, a very well-to-do area. He went to a fee-paying um, pr- uh, prep school, pr- uh, primary school uh, there um, in, in his local area, didn't attend the state school. 
Um, but then when he came over to Ireland, uh, the, the, the east of the family would basically drive from Kent over to Hollyhead and they'd come over on the ferry and then obviously into Dublin to see some of Morris's family uh, who were from Dublin and then down down into uh, North Tipperary to, to see uh, Shane's mother's, mother's family. And the, I mean, I've been to the Commons, which is the cottage where uh, Shane uh, came with his sister Siobhan, and and they had these just incredible uh, times on the farm, learning about farming, agriculture, and and in the bosom of this uh, incredibly close family, close knit family. But this cottage could not have been, uh, you know, it might as well have been on a different planet from the the four bedroom uh, detached house that he was living in uh, in in yeah. you know near. Tombridge Wells yeah, in and, England. And, and not only that, John touched on it when he talked about the type of reading that was going on. Uh, for the biography, I yeah. know one of the per- one of the people that you spoke to, Richard, was one of one of uh, Shane McGann's teachers who had held yeah. on to some of the writing of, of the young Shane McGann. Yeah. I mean, the reading that was happening with his father and in the family was extraordinary, but what he was producing as a as a young young writer, let's face it, was yeah. equally extraordinary. <clears throat> Well, I mean, it's one of the things that I really uh, that really sort of uh, stayed with me talking to Morris, uh, interviewing him and Siobhan, of course, who's now a a, a successful uh, novelist in her own right. Mm. Um, and his mother was also very interested in reading, very literate. So he came from this uh, this incredibly literate family. But what is just even more extraordinary is that, as you say, he was re- reading Dostoevsky, D.H. Uh, Lawrence, Graham Greene, uh, James Joyce in primary school. You know, he he would come back from holidays and they'd, they'd make the children sit down and, and write uh, the reading list that they'd had over the summer. You can imagine <laughs> most, most 10-year-old boys in England wouldn't have been writing reading Ulysses on their on their summer holiday but Shane uh, was was just like you say curious about the world I think one of you somebody there saying absolutely curious about the world fascinated by news I mean he just absolutely soaked up news that was going on in America things that were happening on in Northern Ireland everywhere you know it was just just mm. fascinated by information really uh, massive historian and the teacher as you say uh, who I tracked down, uh, who, who's since passed away. He he had actually kept these books. He hadn't done that for any other students. Only Shane. Yeah, and and he he asked you to return these books to the to the family, which is a, 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 a shows a wonderful generosity. And Tom Simpson, I think, was am I am I saying the, yeah. giving the the teacher That's the correct right. name? We should we should acknowledge I, him in that regard. Uh, let me come back to uh, go ahead. Yeah. Sorry, go ahead, Richard. I was just going to say that, that that actually seeing these these notebooks, these were literally little exercise books that we all knew and mm. loved back in the day, and in writing in red felt tip pen, and and loads of it been crossed out. I mean, the, the, these were written at a very young age, but just just incredible yeah. writing. Yeah, uh, and John, I mean that John Marr with me in studio, as I say, uh, that that aspect of Shane, you know, the Irish person living in British in Britain, or that Irish background. In w- within Britain, that was hugely important. Those that dual aspect of absolutely, his character. and it, it it forms so much of his songwriting as well. It really captures the experience of feeling fiercely Irish mm. and living in England, particularly at a time where being Irish in England wasn't always a nice place to be. The nineteen seventies, you know, the IRA had a horrendous campaign going on, and it must have been challenging. Of course. 
Tipperary, as you mentioned, Sean, was fundamental to his story because mm. it's there that he spends a lot of his time as a child and he's soaking up trad music, Shanno singing, um, fiddle playing. Um, he's getting to sup a bit of Guinness as well, which would prove mm. influential later on. Um, and, and when he comes, when he's a teenager and he's in a very posh secondary school, he's really uh, turned on by punk music. And, yeah. and those two things really play a huge yeah, part. Yeah, that, 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 that aspect. I'll, I'll come to Paul McLoon on this one. Uh, Paul, I, I know you're on stage tonight in Kilkenny with the undertones, <laughs> and I'm sure that will, I mean, Shin, I'm sure will be part of, of the performance in some way tonight uh, with what you're going to do there. That punk aspect that John has touched on, obviously the, the Irish background was there, the Irish music that he had heard yeah. in the Commons in that cottage in Tipperary. The punk aspect, hugely important in terms of what he then did with the Pogues and with music. Oh, absolutely. And it, it is interesting to note, actually, that Irish thing, just on a, a slight side note, but how many of the protagonists of that kind of punk and post-punk thing their Irishness has informed so much of their work. You know, figures like Kevin Rowland, a little later, Morrissey, of course, Johnny Rotten himself, one of the, the guys who lit the blue touch paper on the whole thing. But Shane McGowan very much literally front and centre in a lot of that old footage of the initial English punk uh, explosion, if you like. He's, he's right there. He's one of the faces of the movement. He's one of the faces in the crowd. And, of course, he, he immediately formed a band like so many others when they galvanised by what the Pistols uh, were doing, what they saw them do, and he immediately gets involved. But I think it's just extraordinarily clever that he harnessed the kind of innate punkness, if you like, of a lot of, of Irish music as, as played by the likes of, you know, the Dubliners and the Wolf Tones. And he, and he, he, he saw that kind of lineage. He saw that yeah. link between the attitudes of what those artists and bands were doing and, and, and the feelings that were driving the punk movement and he immediately saw that and, and, and harnessed that with the Pogues which I think is a, just an extraordinarily visionary thing to do and at a time when in the 80s a lot of bands many of whom I absolutely loved and still do to this day but there was a there was a slight air of, of effete kind of you know this sort of beautiful aesthetic kind of thing going on sometimes with some of that kind of uh, music of the early 80s and I think against that the punk the, the, the Pogues yeah. were of a welcome breath, a welcome breath of soil air, if you like. You Absolutely, know, they, 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 and and it's always it was a, a necessary kind of corrective to a lot of what yeah. was going on. As yeah. you say, Paul, it's it's such a simple idea to say let's take the anarchic energy of punk rock yeah. and let's feed that into it, whatever way you want to describe the energy of traditional Irish song and traditional Irish music. And I think mm. nowhere more do we hear that than in this very well-known Pogue song. set sail from the sweet cove of Cork. We were sailing away with a cargo of bricks for the Grand City Hall in New York. It was a wonderful craft she was rigged for the and there we have that version of the Irish Rover and that from the, the late, late tribute or it was first sung I think by the Dubliners you heard Ronnie Drew's voice in there as well the Dubliners and the Pogues on that late, late tribute to the Dubliners and then subsequently recorded which is I think the version that w we were listening to there uh, uh, we're remembering Shane McGowan obviously tonight uh, John Marr with me in studio here uh, Richard Balls biographer of Shane McGowan joining us on the line Paul McLoon there as well and Dara Lynch of Lancome who we'll come to in a moment but just before before I come to Dara, uh, I wanted to ask you, Richard, a little bit about that, you know, th that 
exp- exposure to punk. It was a seminal moment. Uh, you you talk about in the biography in uh, in Shane McGowan's life, and it came at a difficult point in his life as well. He was coming out of a very dark period. Yeah, I mean, I think you know the the, the punk thing was was huge for so many reasons, really, and uh, one of them was that he. Uh, had obviously been experimenting uh, with with drugs at home, and uh, and had really sort of um, got himself into into quite a bad mental state, um, and so much so that his parents kind of said to him, "Look, do you, do you, do you, you know do you want some help?" And and he, he said yes. And um, the upshot of that was that he went into um, Bedlam uh, Royal Bethlehem Hospital, mm. and uh, you know, and this is I mean, a psych ward in 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 those days would not have been a, a pleasant place to be uh and you know he 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 was there for months uh in fact he spent his 18th birthday on the ward of the hospital having to be visited by his parents and his sister so it wasn't long after that 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 after he came out of there with no purpose at all not knowing what he was going to do with his life having gone through this traumatic uh experience of 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 being in a psychiatric hospital and one of the first things that happens to him is that he goes to uh to a pub uh, in London, uh, ostensibly to see the 101ers, Joe, Cla- uh, mm. Joe Strummer's band, and and the, the support band is is the Pistols, and he looks up on stage and sees this guy who's you know a bit a bit unusual looking, put it put it mildly, uh, is Irish, you know, red hair. Uh, second generation and Shane obviously you know I mean it had this kind of you know incredible moment obviously a turning point there uh, when everything just just came together yeah. you know seeing and hearing the the, the pistols um, I mean that was the same night I think that the clash was formed effectively because I think Strummer and, and company looked at the pistols and went we're, we're you know we're, we're gone you know we've got to, yeah. we've got to move with it we've got to go with this um, so the, that was a, a, a literally just a, a, a light bulb moment for Shane and, and he just hurled himself into it yeah, and Dara, Dara Lynch of Lancome Dara, thanks for being with us this evening. You were part of the, the, the 60, 60th birthday celebrations for Shane McGowan in the National Concert Hall. Um, when he, I think that was when he received that Lifetime Achievement Award from, from the National Concert Hall. In terms of what Lancome and, and your generation of musicians are doing, Dara, how do you think, what did Shane McGowan and the Pogues, what did they open up as a possibility for the next generation of musicians? I think probably probably a huge amount. Um, I remember when I was about seventeen. Ian, who's my brother, who's in the band with me, he went to live in London, and uh, it was that kind of like homesick kind of thing where he he got so homesick that he was constantly listening to like Pogues and Dubliners and Christy Moore types in the house that he was living in. And I went over to visit him at the time, and it was kind of like after that that we started like getting more into sort of traditional and folk music, kind of being into the punk scene ourselves, and it. Some of those things, like you could not realize that you can take your sort of cultural heritage and do something completely new and exciting and wild with it. Do you know what I mean? And and what's extraordinary as we were listening to the Irish Rover there, yes, it is it is wild and there is something anarchic about it as well. But it's it's incredibly clever. It's not out of control in any way, Dara. It's totally under control. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's also that thing. I think Paul was kind of saying that earlier as well, where it's like people talk about like mixing like traditional Irish stuff with the punk stuff as as if they're two very different things but I think the more you look into it they're not 
that wildly different and actually probably more like suitable bedfellows than you might imagine, if you know what I mean. Yeah, I could come back to you on that, Paul. Uh, as Dara is mm. saying, you know, they are suitable bedfellows. Uh, it, it's a wonderfully simple idea, but a very clever idea. But I've touched also on the lyrical brilliance of Shane yeah. McGowan. That's part of what makes lifts it beyond just a, a simple mashup. Absolutely. And I think what he has uh, in, in his work, um, as Richard was so brilliantly um, given us so, so much great background there uh, to, to Shane's upbringing. Of course, he was he was already a very literary uh, chap, as a, even as a, even as a young kid, um, and he brings that literary sensibility to it, but not in a kind of a not in a showy way. It, there's a, there's an economy to what he writes mm. lyrically, and I think it's kind of somewhat akin, maybe to, to Lou Reed's at his at his best. And and I was listening today to. Uh, Rainy Night in Soho, I've heard it mentioned already in, in, in the program, and it's just such it's just such a beautiful song, and it, 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 it's so emotional, and it has such a it has such a kind of a gut punch that that final that final lyric, which does that trick that the best kind of pop music does, I mm. think sometimes, which is it, it uplifts you, but it's kind of sad at the same time, and you feel quite emo- you feel quite moved by it, you feel quite you don't know if you're really moved by sadness or happiness. It's just that kind of thing, that spot that that the best pop music just sometimes sometimes manages to hit. Not all the time, of course. I mean, there's all the revolved kind of crazy stuff and good time stuff like Fiesta as well. You know, they were a very versatile band. They're a much more musically, um, I think, diverse than perhaps yeah. people immediately think as well. They, they concentrated a lot, of course, on the, on the kind of Dubliners vibe, but there was a lot more to them than that. And I think that all informs what was kind of great about them. And I think with, with Shane, he just had that knack of moving you with this a tremendous um, lyrical flair that wasn't about, you know, being incredibly kind of um, wordy or anything. Yeah. He just was able to hit the nail on the head emotionally. Yeah. So, and he was so good at it, you know, and it's, it's the quintessence really of great, of great pop song craft, I think that, you know. Let me come uh, back to John Maher in studio with me here. And, and we're touching on all of the brilliance here, but we, we can't get away from there. There is a very dark side and Richard touched on it in that in those early teen years. And, you know, you were saying about the supping of the Guinness er, earlier on as well, John. You interviewed on a, on a, interviewed him, uh, Shane McGowan on a couple of occasions. And I think you were saying that, in fact, perhaps the alcohol he he became I, more lucid as well. As well, the first drinking. time I interviewed him was about fifteen or sixteen years ago, and it was one of those meetings that took a while to warm up. Uh, but you know, he drank a lot, as mm. as anybody who'd been around Shane would know. And but 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 the more he drank, the more expressive he was, the more passionate he was. Then I interviewed him again uh, last November in his home with his wife Victoria Mary Clark in Dublin, and. Uh, he was very subdued, you know. He he's had he had quite a lot of health issues in recent years. He wasn't drinking as much, but drinking is fundamental to the Shane McGowan story. Mm. And you know, I you th- 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 those extraordinary albums and songs from the nineteen eighties would not have existed in the manner in which they exist without alcohol. Just as the Rolling Stones, yeah, would not have created the extraordinary art they created in the nineteen seventies without some industrial quantities of drugs. Yeah. And, and Richard, Richard Balls, um, um, in, in those terms, you obviously, for the, for the biography, you spoke to uh, Shane on numerous occasions and to members of the family and to the wider extended uh, f- group of friends and fellow musicians. 
where does where does the his difficulties in and around substance abuse where did where does that sit with you? Who was the man that you met, and did he did he approach that area in his conversations with you? Um, we did talk about um, about drinking and uh, and and drug abuse. Um, we did we did talk about that, and uh, and there were there were some difficult um, sort of conversations. Um, I think, as, as as has already been said, I mean, the music of the Pogues couldn't have come. Um, those are that that kind of purple patch of writing uh, that across the first maybe three albums and maybe maybe longer um, you know when when that flame burned it burned very very brightly uh, in in that kind of relatively short period actually of a, few, of a few years apparently he'd be out in the pubs of King's Cross and Camden and, mm. and Euston and places and sometimes he'd in the middle of it he'd suddenly go home mm. um, because he, he'd had an idea that of a song and he'd take himself off back to his flat in Cromer Street, which looked like a bomb had gone off in it, and sit there in this, you know, debris-filled filled space and then write these just extraordinary things like, you know, a, a pair of brown eyes and the old the old main drag and things like that. In fact, you mentioned the old main drag there, coming back to you, Dara Lynch. That was the yeah. song that uh, you performed as part of those 60th birthday celebrations at the National Concert yeah. Hall. And you, and you come on, I think it was after Sinead O'Connor, who, who would have thought that we'd be speaking about the two of them uh, in that yeah. way at the... Uh, on this very evening, but what are your memories of that song and and where it fits into it? It was from the you know that hugely important album, Rum Sodomy and the Lash. What is that song? What does it mean for you, Dara? Um, I can't remember that for the sixtieth. We were just like we were told that we basically had to choose one of the songs that we wanted to sing, and we kind of thought nobody else is going to take this one because it's so kind of disgusting and disturbing. And we were just like, right. If we pick that one, we know it's our first choice, and that's how we'll go for that. <laughs> <laughs> but it's also kind of like kind of kind of more of the kind of thing that we would be into. It's just like it's, it's all right to look at the kind of darker and more disturbing and messed up side of life, and it's something that he was particularly good at describing perfectly. And uh, I'm, I'm, I'm going to uh, let you go at this stage, Darren. Thanks for being with us. And I'm, I'm going to let Paul McLoon go shortly as well. But before you go, Paul, I know one of the songs that you wanted to hear was Summer in Siam. Maybe you'd lead us into that and, and we'll take that up to our first break this after, uh, this evening. Yeah, it's from the, the, the final album that he made with the folks and an album that didn't get a fair crack, I don't think, critically at the time. And I've always loved this song particularly. It's a beautiful, contemplative gentle song with this kind of languid sort of arrangement and just this very simple, again, a very simple, almost haiku-like lyric that doesn't immediately tell you what it's really about, but it just moves me in a, a very, very mm-hmm. profound way. And it's always been one of my, my favourite poke songs, Summer and Siam. Well, listen, we listen to that. I'm sure tonight's performance, as I say with the undertones, Paul, uh, Shane McGowan will be with you in in many ways. I'm sure you'll have him on stage in some shape or form, musically, spiritually, he will Absolutely. be there as well. Thanks so much for being with us this evening. Thanks to Daryl Lynch as well. Richard Ball's biographer and John Maher uh, is going to stay with me uh, through into the next part of the programme. But let us now listen to Summer in Siam. Well, it's summer in Siam And the moon is full of rainbows Well, it's summer in Siam Then we go through many changes 
And welcome back to this evening's arena where we're remembering the wonder that was Shane McGahn. His death was announced earlier today. Uh, still with us is Richard Balls, uh, the biographer, writer of the book A Furious Devotion, The Life of Shane McGahn and John Maher is with us in studio here as well. And joining us on the line now is Lisa O'Neill. Lisa, um, I, I was speaking uh, to Dara from Lancome, Dara uh, uh, Lynch from Lancome earlier, just before the break there, and talking about the kind of influence that the Pogues were and Shane McGowan was on uh, the contemporary batch of musicians. Where would you put um, the importance of the Pogues and Shane McGowan? Where do you put that in your own formation as a songwriter? I mean, it's the highest of levels, I think. He was of songwriters. Shane was a true poet and a genius, and I don't think that's too much to say. I grew up with his music. It was always in the house, and um, I just, I think he was a, a beautiful, sensitive soul who spoke the truth, whether people liked it or not. And, um, you know, he was emotionally intelligent. He, he was socially informed. He had his finger on the pulse. And his songs, they, they, they penetrated through the bullshit. Uh, specific songs that did that for you and maybe songs that you've sung your, yourself and, and what it feels like to take on board a Shane McGowan song and, and sing it. Uh, yeah, I mean, do you want me to... Yeah. songs or... Yeah, yeah. I talk mean, about specific songs that you've sung. To mind, yeah. Rainy Night in Soho, Lullaby in London. I recorded that myself and put it out a few years ago. Streets of Derry, Birmingham 6, old, The Old Main Drag... I mean, and when you sit down to learn Shane's songs, that's where you see the depth of the poetry and you can feel his influences in there and who he read and who he loved, like James Stevens. And he loved Delia <coughs> Murphy and Margaret Barry. And his mother, I think, was a was a big influence of, as a singer as well. He loved Clint Eastwood. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, Shane has it all. Yeah, uh, Richard Ball's biographer, we, we were touching on and some of... Like, Go ahead, sorry, Lisa. <laughs> The people he wrote about it and wrote to as well, he wasn't writing for him. So he was writing, he had so much compassion and empathy for the underdog, you know. So Shane was writing about homeless people, about old people, uh, the hunger strikers, prostitutes, rent boys, people who didn't have a voice. And when this stuff is documented in songs, it lives on. Yeah, and Richard Balls, as I say, biographers is with us as well. Lisa, mentioning there, Richard, this idea of perhaps the social conscience of uh, Shane McGowan. How important an aspect of was that in his writing? And it went across again difficult fields and difficult topics at, at, at in the seventies and eighties, particularly in Britain. Uh, his republicanism was a problem for for many people. Yeah, I mean, um, Lisa has spoken really eloquently uh, and in fact much better than I could about about this. I mean, one of the things that I really noticed about Shane when I was sitting talking to him in in, uh, in his flat and the interviews I did with him, or not interviews, but conversations really I had with him were were with him while he was watching television, which which uh, which he used to do uh, a lot of. And um, he, he's very, very um, affected by uh, by sad news and by difficult things happening. So something on the news, like what's happening in Gaza at the moment, that would have really uh, made him very, very upset as a, as a person. You know, he was a real humanitarian. Um, if you came into 
to the, the room and, and and you had something difficult that had happened in your life, Shane would be interested in that. He listened to other people. He actually cared about um, about that. Something that you w- you wouldn't really find with many many celebrities. He he actually cared about other people and uh, and would, would would sit and listen. And um, and that's that's a that, that's a very very rare thing. And I think when he wrote songs, he wrote about people. You know that that, that and the people that he felt about and they and and they were homeless people. Um, as Lisa says, Ren Boys, old at the old main drag. Uh, he wrote about war, you know, as well in songs, um, in particular in a pair of brown eyes. In uh, in it's just so so beautiful, and that they were poetic words. And uh, and as, as I was saying earlier, you could see that in in those school exercise books that the yeah. little bits of writing that he did when he was still at school, you could see that coming through even then. And Lisa, um, that idea of, of Richard mentioning there of what a great listener he was. Of course, that's essential for a musician uh, in the singing of a song, in the performing of a song with others around him or her. Did you sing alongside him? Did you work alongside him in in specific moments at times throughout your career so far? I did. I was very lucky to as well. And I loved his company. Um, He he was very witty. Um, I sang alongside him and uh, with several late night sessions then after kind of studio stuff that would have happened and I felt so rich from it you know Um, he was lovely he was a lovely person and he was sort of magic to be around and I believe he was an empath that's why he had the the ability to feel other people's pain and I guess it was a big it was was a lot for him but he knew what to do with it 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 came out of him then and and left him with, with, with the song and there's just it's hard to put that into words, but that is yeah. That's a true songwriter and poet, you know. And my heart goes out to his father today, Morris, and his his sister Siobhan, yeah. and and uh, his wife Victoria, and his carers who yeah. he was so close to, and they were so good to him. Yeah, and that empath, that empathy, that empathetic quality that Lisa's talking about there, John Marr, it is essential. It's easy to just look at and think of Shane McGowan in terms of, you know, the, the high energy punk and the high energy traditional uh, music and how they melded together and forget about that more sympathetic side, that more empathetic side of oh, the songs. Absolutely. And there are so many songs that just really come from, from the heart. He also wrote about romantic issues in a way that was not cloying or naff, but really moving. Mm-hmm. And he had a, a, a very gentle soul that seemed to be there in the songs. I mean, Victoria, his wife had said that he was such a gentle person. And yes, there can be fury sometimes in the music, but my God, when he stripped it back and sung from the heart, uh, I mean, the, 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 the extraordinary moments. You yeah. know, moment, mm-hmm. moments of just incredible beauty. Uh, and and uh, j- just to say as well, his voice, what a distinct instrument that yeah. voice is. You just need to hear a second of it yeah. and instantly it's Shane McGowan. Yeah, you, you were going to say something there, I think, as well, Lisa. We comment on what John was saying. Oh, I've lost my train of thought. I'm just agreeing here. I mean, there is there's so much to say about him. And I'd, I'd, before you let me go, I'd, I'd really love on this poignant day to, to quote him ever so briefly from one of his songs. Do so, please. Uh, from his uh, Lullaby of London, just in way of sending him off, may the wind that blows from haunted graves never bring you misery. May the angels bright watch you tonight and keep you while you sleep. 
That's absolutely beautiful. And, and the poetic nature of the man, so audible in, in that quote. Lisa, thanks so much for, for being with us this evening. And as we finish up then, uh, Richard, uh, the life after, after the Pogues certainly never reached the same heights as that. But what stands out for you in those final years of Shane McGowan's professional life? I think um, when when he uh, when he was after he was sacked um, in in Japan uh, in the in the hotel room and uh, he, he it was relatively quickly that he um, that he went on uh, to, to to form the Popes and that first I mean I I, I lived in in Dublin I was a journalist um, in Dublin for for most of well for the whole of the nineties really so I I was uh, very fortunate to to be able to see. Uh, some of those performances. I saw them perform at uh, the Flamore, uh, which was a, a one-off uh, festival, mm-hmm. uh, as it turned out, <clears throat> with Bob Dylan and, and Van Morrison and company. And I think that was pretty much their first main uh, performance, really, as, yeah. the, as the Popes. And they played a lot of Pogue songs, but also a few new ones. And that first record, The Snake, um, there are some terrific songs on that ashling is one uh snake with eyes of garnet you know there's some beautiful yeah. beautiful songs on that um so you know very quickly he he went into that and he was collaborating with people at that point like nick cave he did what wonderful world and uh, and a few other people so you know i think that you know that he came more. out of the pogues yeah. yeah and there was more you know yeah. there was more uh, and then the, there was the the, the crock of gold album that came after that but for me the snake you know if, if, if listeners haven't haven't heard that record go and listen to that because there was more Richard thanks so much for being with us uh, this evening and finally John Marr how how should we remember Shane McGowan as a poet and a a songwriter extraordinaire uh, a balladeer of of rare distinction um, of somebody who captured what it was to be Irish in Britain at a difficult time um, and just a beautiful gentle soul John Marr, thank you so much. And thanks to, uh, as I say, Richard Ball's biographer of Shane McGowan and before that, Dara Lynch of Lancome, Paul McLoon, going on stage with the undertones tonight in Kilkenny and Lisa O'Neill. All of them remembering Shane McGowan, who died today at the age of 65. And so on, as usual, on a Thursday night, we're going to film reviews this evening, but um, a kind of truncated version. We'll just do two. Um, We're going to talk about Maestro Bradley Cooper's film about the great composer Leonard Bernstein. You may have heard Conductor Marin Alsop on the show last night talking about that. And we'll also talk about Eileen Anne Hathaway. Uh, It's an adaptation here of Otessa Mosfeg's debut novel, A Psycho Noir in a Small Town, Massachusetts in early 1960s. Cara O'Doherty and John Marr. Not John Marr, John John McGuire. with me, John Marr was on a minute ago. John McGuire are with me in in studio here, and um, maybe we let's let's. Where are we talking about? What part of Leonard Bernstein's life are we talking about in this film? Because it's a big long life that has it's to be a dealt long with. Life. John, we start uh, with uh, an elderly Leonard, played by Bradley Cooper, who also co-wrote and directed this film, sitting at his uh, piano in his Bel Air mansion as an old man. And I have to say, the age up makeup is perfectly done. You, mm. you know, you totally buy him. You're totally convinced by him. And he's reminiscing, sitting at the piano. There's a TV camera studio, uh, TV crew there with him, and he's reminiscing about his life. And then we go right back, 1940s. He's in his mid twenties. He's living in New York. He's in a rela- he has a boyfriend. He's in a gay relationship. He's already well renowned as a light music composer. 
he's a renowned teacher and uh, uh, a piano prodigy, yeah. you know, and uh, he's making his way in the world. He gets a call one morning. Our conductor is sick. It's the New York Philharmonic at Carnegie Hall. Our conductor is sick. Are you free? He's the understudy. He goes, no rehearsal, full house, a triumph. Yeah. And he becomes the wonderkind, becomes overnight the sensation. And it, that's where it kicks off. That's, I that's mean, where it kicks off. Very quickly then we get to meet um, the woman that will become his wife, Felicia Montalegre Cohn. Lots of names, as you will hear in this clip. She arrives at a party. She's greeted by Shirley Bernstein. This is Sarah Silverman playing Leonard Bernstein's sister. And he introduces her, or she introduces um, the Carrie Mulligan character to her, all of the friends that are there and her brother, Leonard Bernstein. Thought you might be here. You've certainly been making the rounds. Have you met the guys? Betty and no. Adolf. They're just arriving. Hello, hello. Ellen, of course, you've run into her to Mother's studio, no doubt. Hello, Felicia. Who did I miss? Have I missed anyone? Just the piano player. <laughs> well, I figured you needed no introduction. Hello, I'm Lenny. Hello, Felicia. Uh, Bernstein, like that one. Montalegra. Mont Montalegra? Montalegra Cohn. Cohn? Montalegre Cone. Well, that's an interesting marriage of words. There we go. Uh, Kerry Mulligan as Leonard Bernstein. Bradley Cooper, uh, not Leonard, Kerry, Mulligan, Kerry Mulligan as Felicia Montalegre Cone. Leonard Bernstein played by Bradley Cooper and indeed his sister, Shirley Bernstein, played by Sarah Silverman. Kara, uh, the, the marriage is very much, a, a, it's a hugely important part of this film. It's kind of the heart of the film. Uh, what do we learn about Bernstein and that relationship? I mean, he's deeply in love with her, but it is complicated because he has plenty of affairs on the side, mostly mm. with men, but he's he's well known. And when when they first get together, she kind of accepts this part of his life. It's part of the, it's part of him. And she's okay with this. But as life goes on, Felicia really supports his career. She supports mm. his star. She gives up part of her own acting career. She does everything for him. And he's a huge personality. He's work driven. He loves the attention. And that dynamic, as time goes on, she realises she gets to that point where, where she should become the priority in his life after all these years, raising his kids, taking care of him. And she's just not. And it reaches that point where, do you know what? I'm, yeah. I'm tired of this. I, I'm fed up of this carry on. And things become fractured between them. But he very much relies on her. Uh, she's an incredibly important part. She, he really couldn't be who he is without, without her support. Her. Yeah, the, the, obviously, a, a hugely important part of any film about a conductor is the conducting the music, and yeah. the music itself. Yeah, yeah. How does how does Bradley Cooper handle that side of things? Marin also mentioned that he had got specific coaching around. Yeah, apparently, conducting. so I read that he trained for six months mm. uh, to conduct in Bernstein's you know, idiosyncratic way. They all have their own way. Now, Bugs Bunny didn't need six months when Bugs <laughs> Bunny was conducting. The, I, I didn't notice anything that I wouldn't have seen, let's say, with Kate uh, Blanchett in Tar at the yeah. start of the year. I don't know if Kate Blanchett did six months. But the music is absolutely fantastic. She, did, she spent in. time learning as well, yeah. It is a skill, of course it is, but it's it's it bleeds into quite all the other stuff that Bradley yeah. Cooper is doing here. I mean, this is a film about... It's got such an energy and he's doing so much in multitasking on every level. Well, Leonard Bernstein wanted everything, didn't he? He wanted well, to be... That's the whole idea. That, <laughs> that's, that's really the whole idea. There's a line of dialogue that. actually shown earlier on where he says, the world only wants us to be only one thing and I find that deplorable. And he goes through that here. But the, the film itself, 
in many ways is a fairly standardized biopic of the American great man. You know, mm. we've seen this kind of film before, but it, there, it kind of shifts then and it becomes two things and more later when we focus on Mulligan's character. I think the film could have been called Maestra because it's really about her. She gets top yeah. billing in this film. The title card comes up you know, after we see her for the first time. And I think there is something really interesting there in how it's a film, you know, the horrible old outdated cliche behind every great man. But really, she was she well, was right there with them all, every step of the way and the crosses that she had to yeah, bear. But that says something about um, Cooper, surely, as well, that he he writes, he directs and he stars, but he knows he Let us focus that. on this other character. Absolutely. And he, he, he clearly and he spoke to the family. He worked a lot with them. And everybody says how she was she was instrumental, mm. uh, instrumental. And he's a musician. Anyway, I had to use it. But I mean, he really <laughs> he, he Bradley Cooper has taken on a Bernstein like mission to accomplish all of these things. I mean, he he's an accomplished director. The way he weaves the music in, he uses Bernstein's own music throughout the soundtrack. But the mass yeah. sequence is yeah. beautiful. Uh, even though music. there are lots of those who would have question marks musically around the mask, but the no, way it's using the and film. And that, that, scene, that film. scene is so well done that for a moment I forgot it was a film and I wanted to start clapping. Uh, <laughs> uh, there you go. Um, lots of talk about prosthetic noses, etc., etc., etc. What about um, what about uh, the aspect here? Uh, does it rise above impersonation? Oh, for me, it does. Absolutely. He, I mean, he, he just encompasses every bit of him becomes that man. Down to, his, down to the movement of tiniest movements of his fingers. It was, it's, I think it's, it's a, a staggeringly good performance. And I think it's, yeah, it is beyond impersonation. He very much becomes Bernstein. Stars from you on this one, Cara? Uh, I, I am a whole hook, line and sinker. I had to go for the five. I thought it was stunning. And I just love those nostalgic moments where it feels like it's a 1940s musical. I'm a huge On the Town fan. I love yeah. Bernstein's work. And for Anybody who's a fan of that era, they will fall in love with every bit of it. And does it move from black and white to colour to give us that sense? It does of in, in the in late period. 60s, early yeah. 70s, yeah. And that's beautifully handled. It's all beautifully handled and it's full of this inventive camera work. And he really does work very hard yeah. so to stage from, it. Yeah, it Stars for me, it's a four star for me. It doesn't quite reinvent the biopic the same way as, let's say, the, A Star is Born mm. really reinvigorated the American musical. Uh, so he doesn't yeah. quite reach that. But for me, this kind of chronicle. The, it deepens our understanding of the two of them and I think uh, that's really valuable. All so right. four stars. So yeah. Four and five respectively there for Maestro. Uh, Let's move on then to film number two, an adaptation of Montessa Moshfeg's dark novel starring Thomasine McKenzie and Anne Hathaway. A film about a woman's friendship with her new co-worker at a prison facility where she works. So give us the setup of the, the two women. It's Eileen is the Thomasine McKenzie character. Yeah, she's in her early 20s. She uh, She's a poor, bit of a miserable poor creature stuck mm. taking care of her dangerously alcoholic father uh, played by Shay Wingham played excellently and scarily by him and her her life is just it's drudgery she drags herself to work she doesn't take much uh, even in her parents she's just kind of yeah. she's given up and this bombshell who is both smart and beautiful Anne Hathaway who plays Rebecca she's a new psychologist in the prison where where she uh, where Eileen works and she comes in she gives her some attention she knows how she's a psychologist she can pick up on what Eileen needs and Eileen starts to come out of her shell and, and it creates a very different dynamic that we're not quite sure what is going on between the two of them Alright let's listen to the, the, this is the moment when they meet in fact uh, Rebecca would start shortly after the meet Rebecca played by Anne Hathaway and Eileen played by Thomasine McKenzie and this, they're interested in maybe spending a little bit of time together Wait Eileen 
I don't mean to be forward, and um, you probably have other plans already, but um, can I treat you to a drink tonight? I don't know anyone in this darn town, and I'd love to treat you to a cocktail if you came. Okay. Okay, I twisted your arm. So, uh, who makes the best martini in town? Maybe O'Hara's. O'Hara's. It's actually the only band, Tom. No, O'Hara's is good. See you at seven. With bells on. Is that the expression? Mm -hmm. So there we had Anne Hathaway and Thomasine McKenzie in, this, in McKenzie in the scene from Eileen. I don't mean to be forward. She so does mean to be forward there, John McGuire. <laughs> she absolutely does. Yeah, like every other casually chauvinistic man and spotty teenager in the prison. Eileen can't tear her eyes off Rebecca right mm. from the start. This glamorous, worldly woman who's arrived seemingly out of nowhere into this drab world. And Rebecca, for her part, revels in the attention. And they strike up this friendship that for Eileen's part, she wants to develop into something more. But just at that point, Rebecca takes on the case of a disturbed inmate, a young man played by Sam Nivola, who had murdered his father and had then gone mute and wouldn't talk about it mm. at all. And uh, Rebecca is trying to open him up a bit. And that story uh, brings us to another character played by Marin Ireland, who's a wonderful actor, uh, who's this young man's mother. And that whole element of the story then kind of turns into true crime. It becomes like a true detective story or kind of a pulp novel. There's yeah. that element to it. Uh, but that, that sounds to a certain extent, Cara, as if um, as if the Eileen character, which is the title of the film, after all, is if the, does the Eileen character kind of fade into the background or does she stay present? Uh, she does, uh, you she, probably, maybe you can't tell me how. She, well, she starts changing slowly bit by bit. She starts wearing nicer clothes. She's cut, she, come, she comes out of her shell. She starts having a few drinks at the bar. And these sort of small steps, they, she starts to see the world in a different way and there's sort of possibility out there so no, we can't really say why she mm. would know she, she certainly does not fade into the background yeah. or maybe yeah. if, if we make a comparison to Todd Haynes's film Carol that might give a hint of the direction it goes in it's very much and it, there's a lot of similarities there where, but Carol was focused really on the obviously the difficulties but also the beauty of the 1960s I mean this this is drudgery this is the this is the anti-1960s film um but it's a Eileen. There, there is more to her. She just doesn't know it yet, and it it starts to slowly emerge. Um, thanks to this fabulous Marilyn Monroe smart psychologist mm. and the performances here John who yeah two ferociously it? interesting the two of them are Thomasine McKenzie is really outstanding and uh, but for me we're really only getting into them mm. when the story takes a swerve a kind of a sudden swerve I, I'm and this the inner you... turmoil curdles into outward chaos which neither we're not prepared for and neither character seems prepared for either and what follows then quite close to the end I'm not going to give it yeah. away obviously but that struggles to keep pace and leaves them and us kind of stra stranded really So the swerve I got the impression even when you were talking about how the Eileen car how that relationship goes, goes into the back seat in some I ways I wanted to spend more time yeah. with them so I the wanted them to develop you. it yeah. Yeah. I mean, the question is does Eileen want to be with Rebecca or does she want to be Rebecca and this is you know and That's... Rebecca's name is not an accident either you know yeah. there's 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 a re all this rich kind of psychodrama going on, and then you, that's all forgotten. You're thinking of Daphne like, well, Maria. What happened yeah. to that? I was enjoying yeah. that. Okay. So. What are you saying uh, ultimately, Cara? 
I, I didn't mind it as much. There is a plot hole and I'd love to know what was going on there. We can't talk about it because it is a spoiler, but still it's incredibly well performed. It is it is quite gripping. And even though it goes a little bit off the rails, I'm going to go with the four. You're going to go with a solid four. And um, William Aldroyd uh, as, or Aldroyd as Aldroyd, director. Yeah, he did uh, Lady Macbeth with Florence Pugh. Yeah, that by was an a great Owen film. And O'Reilly, and that yeah. was a really good film. He's a good director and he gets great performances out of the two of them. And there's this gorgeously textured setting. I mean, this really, really deeply textured. And, and you're in it straight away. But for all of that kind of simmering stuff, uh, it, it kind of boils over and... It, it, you're not left with a lot towards the end, I so, found. So three of, for me, three from three a, stars. A slightly disappointed three from John mm. on that one. Uh, so John McGuire and Carol Doherty are two reviewers this evening speaking to us about Eileen, as you just heard there. And before that, Maestro, which certainly sounds like one we might want to get out and see. That is our lot for this Thursday evening here on Arena. Uh, this evening's programme was researched by Paula Shields and Leah Murphy. Ollie Hamilton was the broadcast coordinator. Harry Buckless was on sound and the programme was produced by Sinead Egan. I will talk to you once again tomorrow night, seven o'clock here on RTE Radio 1. And I'm sure there will be lots of Shane McGowan and Pogues music coming up after the news when John Creedon will be with you here on Radio 1.